And we welcome all of you worldwide on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. A very special moment for my colleague John Farrell and myself, a conversation with William Dudley. And I'll take you back, John, 14 years to Bill Dudley. There is not a moment to lose. He was shockingly prescient at Goldman Sachs on the path of our fiscal deficit out to $1 trillion. But that was little preparation for 2007 when Tim Geithner said, come over to the Fed desk at the New York Fed and help us with a short-term market. What was stunning about this, John, you and I were killing to get B's in school. The only B he ever got in his PhD program at Berkeley was that B from the laureate Akerlof on microeconomics. So I'm not sure he's qualified Which, to, to be clear to here today. is Janet Yellen's husband. I'm not sure if we want to go there about his grades from Janet Yellen's <clears throat> husband, but we might want to find out what his grade is for the New York Fed after yeah, the performance absolutely. from last week. This was Bill Dudley on Bloomberg Opinion last week, and I want to bring you the lead. Get a grip. The Fed can handle the repo market. Mr. Dudley saying the following, one of the world's most important interest rates has had a tumultuous week. The aberration has generated a lot of concern. My advice, don't worry, the Fed can handle it. Bill, great to have you with us on the program. Let's just start with what happened last week. So what happened last week was on Monday, uh, there were two things happened. Uh, corporate tax payments, uh, September 15th, and settlement of treasury auctions. And both those things basically moved money from the private sector, from banks, to the treasury's account at the Fed. That drained bank reserves from the system. And late, later in the day, on Monday, you start, start to see quite a bit of upward pressure on repo rates. And that spilled into Tuesday. In fact, on Tuesday, the pressure was significant enough to actually push the federal funds rate, which the Federal Reserve targets it had a range at the time of two to two and a quarter percent, pushed it to 2.30 percent. So the federal funds rate was actually trading for one day outside of its range. We're trying to work out whether it was a confluence of events, things happening all at the same time, temporary, idiosyncratic, or something more structural. Whether the central bank has got to find out the appropriate level of reserves is that what we're still working through, Bill? Well, there was a structural underlying issue, which is the Fed has shrunk its balance sheet over time. Uh, currency is growing. Uh, the Treasury's cash balance at the Fed is growing now that the debt limit issue is, is, is being resolved. And so as a consequence, the number of reserves in the banking system has been shrinking. And this is tricky because the Federal Reserve doesn't really know how much bank reserves banks are, need to satisfy the new uh, liquidity coverage ratio requirements, these are liquidity requirements, and, the f and how much demand is going to be generated by the fact that interest is now paid on reserves. So the Fed, you know, for years there was plenty of reserves in the system. Right. But now they're getting to the point where they're getting to that point where reserves demand is equaling reserve supply. And so if there's a little bit of a, a shock to the system, that can put up work. But you just said the heart of the matter. This is the trust market, a short-term paper. You worked for years in the trenches of this with your Goldman Sachs market experience over to the New York Fed with Geithner. And you just said it. The Fed doesn't really know. That the Fed doesn't really know, does that potentially affect trust in this important No, I don't market. think so. I mean, I think we always knew that there was some desired demand for reserves, but we couldn't observe how much that demand was because there was more than sufficient reserves in the system. So there was always going to be a point where the reserve supply shrank to the point that we would see upward pressure on short-term rates. And when, the, when we reached that point, the Fed would know, what do they need to do? They need to add more reserves to the system. And that's what we saw over the past week. One complaint we have had is that they were late. They weren't quick enough. What's your response to that? Well, in the scheme of things, 
maybe one day. It would be nice if they had responded maybe a little bit more quickly. But in the scheme of things, is this, this is a, 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 an event for markets. It's not an event for the economy at all. But you know what the narrative is that's emerging over the last couple of weeks? In fact, it's been emerging for the last 12 months, Bill, is that you left, Simon Potter reportedly was squeezed out, and this New York Fed is different under Williams than it was to you. That this New York Fed isn't as sensitive as what's happening with markets as it was under you. I don't accept that. Well, defend John Williams and the Fed, please. Well, we knew that there was going to be some point where reserves were had shrunk to the point where demand for, for reserves was going to equal supply. And when that happened, we we're going to see some upward pressure on rates. That's what, 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 that's what happened that uh, last week. No surprise there. The, the other thing that people, I think, don't really appreciate, it's not one person at the top of the Federal Reserve that does its you know, thing. There's, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of really qualified people uh, that execute monetary policy on behalf of the, of the, of the Federal Reserve. And where, where are we today? We're in a, we're in a good place. Repo, repo rates are now back down to where they should be. The Federal Funds rate is well within its range. So mission accomplished as far as I, I John I and I talked to Villain Bowdery of Citigroup. That's a small bank. You may be familiar with it. <laughs> and, and, and Bill Dudley, Bowder said the same thing. Everything's fine. It's a kerfuffle. There's a sizable part of our Bloomberg surveillance audience that flat out are worried or they even don't agree with the idea that the balance sheet of the ECB, the BOJ, and the Fed is moved from X up to 14-some trillion dollars. They want a reassurance that that is a good place to be rather than the nostalgia of moving back to a previous balance sheet regime. Well, if we move back to the previous balance sheet regime, what you'd have to do then is the Federal Reserve would have to intervene massively in markets on a day to daily basis, and I don't think that's a good regime. In the current regime, if you have enough reserves in the system, you don't have to do anything day to day. The, the interest rate you pay on excess reserves essentially sets the level of money market rates. The Federal Reserve, the federal funds rate trades within this range and you're it, done. So right, it's a much simpler regime. Am I right, John, that we need like 400 billion is the plug-in number right now, or 380 billion? Well, people don't really know exactly how much reserves you need to have sufficient, but I think the Fed is going to build up a little bit bigger buffer. They're doing it by doing yep. repo operations. And I think in the fullness of time, there, there's, there's a prospect of two things happening. Number one, they'll increase the size of their balance sheet, so they'll buy, start to buy Treasury securities again. And Chair Powell talked about that in his press conference. He's talked about organic balance sheet growth. So the balance sheet will start to grow again. And the second thing that they're going to strongly consider, I think, is, is introducing a standing uh, repo facility. So whenever there's upward pressure on rates, uh, there's a facility that people can come to and do repo with. And that would sort of take away any risk of a big up, up, upswing in short term. Many rates. people picking up on the expansion of the balance sheet. And a lot of people at pains to stress that this is different. This is not QE, this is totally different. Well, You've touched well, on well, the optics of it as yeah, well. Yeah. And I want you to run us through why the expansion of the balance sheet is definitely not that. And secondly, how you can adjust the operation of that balance sheet expansion to ensure that people don't believe it is that. So if you're adding reserves to keep short-term rates from exhibiting upward pressure, uh, that's very different than adding reserves to try to push down long-term rates. So quantitative easing is about take, buying longer maturity assets to try to push down long-term interest rates. Uh, trying to have enough reserves in the system to pr prevent upward pressure on short-term rates, it's about adding reserves to the system. So the goals are completely different. In both cases, the balance sheet increases. Now, one thing the Fed could do to make it very clear that this isn't QE is to expand their balance sheet, not by buying Treasury securities across the yield curve, but by concentrating is, on Treasury, tre Treasury bill securities. Is this central bank constrained by a trillion-dollar deficit? I mean, we're talking, John, no. you're better at this than I am in Germany. 
of a desire for fiscal expansion and other selected. A desire outside of Germany. Are, are, are guys inside. like you limited by a trillion dollar deficit? No, no, I don't think the. I mean, there's lots of reasons why you might want to worry about the long term fiscal path of the United States. You wrote States. about it years ago. You know, for example, the fact that debt service costs are going to go up over time because interest rates are probably not going to stay as low as they are today, and the retirement of the baby boom generation, so Medicare and Social Security costs. But it doesn't put any constraints on the Fed at this point. Have you spoken to the New York Fed in the last week? No. Not a single word. No one's reached out to you. No, no. I mean, look, it's really important for the former president He's of, of, of the New York Fed to let the current president <clears throat> and the people on the desk to do their of job. Of course, but I have to raise the question because I've had people come to me that used to work at the New York Fed and say the morale right now is not very good, that there's a lack of leadership. I can't comment on that. Well, this interview has come to a screeching Well, hole. no, the reason I raised the question, <laughs> I think a lot of market participants were concerned that the New York Fed didn't come Fair. in on the Monday night. It's out night. there. It's definitely they out there. They didn't come in on the Monday I, night and they waited until the Tuesday morning. And, Bill, the reason I, I, I raise this, this... I think this is really a non-story. I really do. Well, the reason I raise this, I, I think, is important. If the narrative is being shaped that this New York Fed under Williams is not in top of the markets in the way that it was under you, we've got a problem, haven't we? But I don't think that's the case. I really don't think what that's is the case. What is the case? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about it in the slightest. Okay, but then I want you to tell us what the case is for for the Fed. We've had this testing within a hyper complex market. You mentioned when you went from Goldman Sachs over there, even Bill Dudley had a learning curve in certain elements of the plumbing. Everybody I, has a learning I curve. I want you to speak to our audience worldwide right now about our confidence in the linkage of this plumbing into global banking system trust. How do we get from point A to point B? Well, I think we've already gotten to, to point B. The repo market is, is behaving well. The federal funds rate is trading within this range. I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's all about outcomes. And the outcomes we see today are, are, are perfectly fine. So I think that, I think, I think you look at this, you know, a month from now, you're gonna have a very different view. Over the weekend, there was questions about major banks, including maybe some you've been associated with, reticent, reticent to move out their money or their funds or their securities as well. Is that a behavioral aspect well, coming look, into the I mean, plumbing? I, mean, I think it's fair to say that when there's a shortage of reserves in the system relative to demand, people were surprised by that. Yeah. And when they were surprised by that, they started to think, well, maybe I should be more worried about, uh, do I have enough reserves uh, in my account? So temporarily, when you have a little surprise like this, demand for reserves might actually increase, and that could extend the, 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 the uh, period of, of, of stress in repo markets. Bill, you'll be happy to know we don't have to talk about the New York Fed anymore, <laughs> but the interview could get a little bit more tense because we do have to reflect on an op-ed that you wrote around about a month ago. And I want to pick up on the quote, which you've since clarified, and I'll ask you to clarify it once again. It was the conclusion of the original op-ed that I think got a lot of people's backs up, and it said the following. If the goal of monetary policy is to achieve the best long-term economic outcome, then Fed officials should consider how their decisions will affect the political outcome in 2020. When that got published, how much pushback did you get from your former colleagues? Look, I think there was a, a misunderstanding about what I was really trying to say. What were you trying the, to say? Well, the main, thing, the main point of the piece was to try to point out the fact that the President Trump was trying to sort of have it both ways on trade. Uh, he was pursuing a trade policy with China that posed risk for the economy. And at the same time, he was saying, if the economy performs badly, it's, it's the Fed's fault. And my view is that the Fed needed to make it very clear that the major risk to the economy 
is trade policy because creating uncertainty about uh, investment and, and supply lines and things of that sort. And the Fed needs to make it clear that the monetary policy can only do so much about that. And I think the Fed has made it more clear over the last few weeks. I think if you look at uh, Chairman Powell's press conference, he talked about trade uncertainty a lot. He talked about how trade uncertainty is not something that the Fed can easily address. And that's the kind of pushback that I thought was desirable. I think a lot of people would be sympathetic with that view. And that was the part of the op-ed that I think a lot of people were sympathetic with. Where they weren't was the mention of 2020. Well, Where does 2020 Well, look, I was, I was, I, I was trying to be provocative. You were what, certainly and, that. And, and what, did I, what I said, to be very precise about it, one could, if you accept the notion that the Fed's goals are to maximum sustainable price to, and price stability over the long term, and one also accepts the premise that tr this trade war might not be good for the economic outlook, then logic would say, there's a question about should the Fed take this? Should the Fed take this into consideration? Now, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. I made it very clear in the second piece that I wrote. I don't think the Fed should actually take this into consideration in setting policy. If if the Fed were to do that, they would become politicized, and people would basically react by reducing the independence, taking away the independence of the Fed. So but you think the Fed's already become politicized, don't you? Well, well, it has become politicized because of the president's attacks on the Fed. So there was an academic piece that was that came out over the last I don't know 24, 72 hours mm -hmm. that I saw it, uh, just this morning, and, and they basically did a study of the effect of the president, the, fe the effect yeah. of the president's tweets, tweets on on the federal funds market, and what they found was that the tweets actually were causing people to reduce their expectations about the federal funds market. So the Fed's already politicized in the sense that people are not sure now yeah. if the Fed is easing because that's the appropriate policy path or because of pressure from the tr president. But that politicization is not coming from the Fed, it's coming from the president. But that is a really important point, but also that politicization in that piece, Bill, it came from you. And earlier on in this conversation, when I asked you to talk about the New York Fed, you were keen to say a former New York Fed president should not comment on the current New York Fed president. But by mentioning 2020, can you appreciate how you've compromised your former colleagues and the optics around their next decision? Look, I think, that, I think they're going to behave in a apolitical way. They're going to do what they think is appropriate for the economy. Mm -hmm. And if I were sitting in their shoes, I would do exactly the same thing. I want to talk about the chairman. Uh, we, by all accolade, including I think John would agree with me, Chairman Powell had a good press conference as well. There's still this thing about William Miller and a non-PhD chairman. How's Chairman Powell doing? And is there elements there of, well, he's not a PhD, and so there is a different cadence to what this given chairman says. I, I've said repeatedly you know, that you don't have to have a PhD in economics to be a very successful policymaker of the Fed. And I think uh, Chairman Powell is proving that. Uh, I think he understands what, what monetary policy uh, needs to do. Uh, I think he's very thoughtful. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about <clears throat> judgment. And, right, and, thank you. And, and, and your confidence in someone's judgment is what's critical, not whether they're a PhD economist or not. And I have confidence in Chairman Powell. If we assume the probabilistic assumption of any given chairman, and of course the President of the United States harping on it every step, I can't imagine President Trump tweeting in early 2008. I mean, think about uh, that right now. This, this chairman's being buffeted from all sides. What does he need to hear from Vice Chairman Clarida and the other PhD economists at the Fed right now to drive forward the, to a better policy? Well, I think the important thing is that the core group of, of, of leaders at the Fed, so Clarida, Williams, and Powell are all on the same page. Are they? I think so. What about the dots? You love the dots more better than me. Can the I, dots I think it's away? fair to say, I'm going to speak on behalf of a lot of people in the market. I think a lot of people hate these dots. 
and I believe the people on the Fed are starting to go that way as well. Why do we still have them, Bill? Well, I think it's once, once you move to greater transparency, it's hard to sort of pull it back. Uh, the problem with the dots are not the dots per se, but the fact that how people interpret them. It's a, it's a modal forecast of what you think is going to happen, but it doesn't capture all the uncertainty about the, the economic outlook. And so the reality is very seldom are you actually going to do what you say you, you, you think is the most likely outcome in the dots because the world will change in a way that, that pushes you to a different policy. It does capture a lot of dissent and a fractured Federal Reserve in the, at the moment in a way that it wasn't maybe 12 months ago. We don't just see that at the Fed, we see that in Europe as well at the ECB. Is there a broader signal there, the amount of pushback that policymakers at the top of the Fed and the top of the ECB are getting in response to this slowdown? I don't think there's a big split in the Federal Reserve. I mean, the question for the Fed right now is, the economy is doing fine, but there are risks to the economic outlook caused primarily by trade policy uncertainty. There's not an inflation issue. So in that environment, do you take out some insurance or not? And some people think you should take out some insurance, and other people are, are uh, well, want to see more economic weakness before they do that. And yet there's something a lot of people still struggle with. And our colleague Michael McKee has asked the question twice, I believe, of Chairman Powell, why do lower interest rates help to address the tensions that have come off the back of the trade dispute? Why do they help? Well, I, sir, 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 I think they help in a number of ways. Number one, they make financial conditions more accommodative. So stock market, bond market supports the U.S. economy. Probably takes a little bit of upward pressure off the dollar, which has consequences for U.S. trade performance. So at the, at the margin, it's not well suited for trade uncertainty. It's not like the Fed cuts 25 basis points, trade uncertainty gets resolved. But it does help support the economy in other ways. We are 12 years down the road from Geithner, Dudley, and others. Major, major tensions of 07, 08, and into 09 as well. When does this end? When does the financial repression end? When does the real yield, uh, John Show, actually become a positive real yield in the United States? The nominal yield in Europe as well is, you know, they're going to say this, Bill, Dudley's experiments, Geithner's experience, Bernanke's experiment, it just hasn't worked out for the common good. When do we escape from this well, to normality? I, I, I think that's a really you know, negative interpretation of where we actually are. We're at a, a very low unemployment rate, well below 4%. Uh, the Fed's pretty close to their inflation goal. The core uh, personal consumption expansion is at 1.6%. <clears throat> so I, I think the reality is if you could just stay here in terms of employment and and Until we clear the trade war, is that the key issue for you as President Trump and his trade war? Well, I think that right now that creates the biggest downside risk to the economy, for sure. This is the third growth scare of the last 10 years or so, 2011, 2012, 15, 16, we now have 2018, 2019. The previous two, Bill, I think it's fair to say have been head fakes. We had the manufacturing really soft, didn't bleed into the broader economy. Anything you see here right now that is different to the experience of 11, 12, 15, 16? Well, the difference is that the president has a lot of uh your control over what actually ultimately happens. The second thing that I think is important to really stress is the household sector is in really good shape. You know, jobs are being created, uh, wages are rising a little bit more quickly, uh, household confidence is high, uh, and households have not taken on much debt. I mean, if you look at the, the, the household debt through this cycle, it's totally different than it was the last cycle. I think the reason why people are so nervous, frankly, is because of the Great Recession. They're like, uh-oh, we're going to go back to that environment. Yeah. And the reality is, I think that that risk is you know, pretty much off the table for two reasons. The household sector is not overextended, and the financial system is in much better shape. 
The, the, the thing that I, I wonder about, Bill, is all this discussion and what John and I speak of every day on Bloomberg surveillance is the rationalization of a new terminal rate. Michael Faroli at J.P. Morgan and others have been very good about this. Goldman Sachs had a house call of lower GDP way out front of many others as well. Is all of this a rationalization within our greater financial system to get to a new nominal rate, a new terminal rate, a new real rate, and indeed a new unemployment rate that's just a different statistic from our childhood. Oh, that's very much, the, it seems to be the case, that the real interest rate consistent with a neutral monetary policy seems to be distinctly lower today than in the past. In your head, I mean, what? I mean, if you look at the old Taylor rule formulation, the real interest rate that was considered sort of neutral was 2%. Now people think the real interest rate that's considered neutral is closer to, you know, maybe zero to a half percent. If you look at the, 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 the summary of economic projections that the Fed publishes, their long-term nominal federal funds rate that, that they, they expect, the median is 25 percent. So 2% inflation plus a half percent real rate. So that's much lower than it's been in the past. Where's your run rate on real GDP and how much is the president affecting that with his trade war? It's hard to know precisely how much trade is, the trade uncertainty is cutting off growth, but we know that it's definitely having negative consequences for investment spending. And if it's, we go forward and tariffs continue to get ratcheted up, it's actually going to bleed over into the consumer as well because tariffs are a tightening of fiscal policy. I'm very pleased to say that you think the neutral rate is 0 to 0.5%. At least it's still positive. We're getting a lot of questions from our audience about the prospect of negative interest rates. We have them in Denmark, we have them in Switzerland, across Europe, in Japan as well. Is that something you could ever see working, just operationally working here in the United States, Bill? I think you could operationally do it, but I think that you saw the Fed did not go down that path in you know, 2011, 12, 13. And I think the experience with negative interest rates around the world has probably been pretty mixed. So I think the bar for the Federal Reserve ever contemplating negative interest mm -hmm. rates in the U.S. is really, really high, especially given that there's other tools available to stimulate the economy, namely quantitative mm -hmm. easing, forward guidance. And you can always use well, fiscal policy as well. It's right where I wanted to go. Where's forward guidance? Is it in the, is it in the economic graveyard now? Do we go back to a true data dependency, as Chairman Powell's talked about? Well, when you need foreign guidance is <clears> when you're at the zero lower bound for a short-term interest. Rates. You don't need forward guidance when you have positive interest rates. You can just adjust the interest rates as needed as the economy evolves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right now it's, you know, I think as Chairman Powell made it very clear, it's a meeting to meeting. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, he can't tell you what he's going to do next because it depends on the economic data. And what's interesting about it is the economic data actually looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the city surprise index, for example, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's come back tremendously. And if you look at the inflation data, sequentially, right. core inflation's actually okay, starting to This is back the up. number one mail I get. I, I get less mail than Farrell, but we'll go with it. This is the number one mail I get, and Chairman Powell's on the same page as I am. Trim Dallas meaning Cleveland Fed show high inflation that every viewer and every listener is feeling every day. What about the deflation bugaboo, the disinflation worry that we have? Do we have a sustained good inflation, or do we have to worry, worry that it will cut either way? Look, I think the risk at the, at the margin are inflation actually starting to drift a bit higher. Now, that's not a problem right now because inflation is below the Fed's 2% objective and inflation expectations have come down a little bit. So the Fed wouldn't be unhappy at all if inflation drifted up a little bit above 2%. But did you ever think unemployment would have to get this low and still we wouldn't good see wage, wages accelerating? 
well, in, a we big, are, in a material way. Yeah, we're seeing an acceleration, but it's very, very gradual. I, you know, I think it's a surprising. I mean, I, it's a good thing, though. I mean, the fact that you can run the economy at this low level of, of the unemployment rate and not right. have an inflation problem, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That means literally millions more people can be employed without having the Fed to sort of cut off the expansion. I want to go back to what you and Ed McKelvey said years ago. There's not a moment to lose. What does the economic profession need to do to help this president away from an economic mercantilism that borders on Elizabeth I? What do guys like you need to do to convince this administration to come to a successful outcome? Pharaoh speaks with Lawrence Codlow once a month. Once a month, is it? Once a month. But let's once be clear month. here, Bill, you agree that we need to take on China. Yes. You just disagree with the approach. Yes. I think. I mean, I think there's sort of two problems. Number one, uh, the president, I don't think, understands where trade deficits come from. So, you know, the fact that we have a tr have trade deficits as a country is because we have a shortfall of domestic savings relative to investment. And nothing you do in terms of trade negotiation is going to fundamentally change that. So the trade deficits are not going to go away. And number two, I think he thinks that tariffs are not paid by U.S. households and businesses, when in fact the incidence of tariffs falls very heavily on U.S. consumers. A final question for you, Bill, and, and I've got to reflect on it because many people have asked this question of me and I finally got the chance to ask you the question. Do you regret? writing that op-ed and mentioning 2020? No, I mean, I think I should have made it more clear that it was a speculative argument and that I don't think the Fed should be political in their actions. I should have been more clear on that point. But no, look, I think it's important that people be willing to push the envelope a little bit, be provocative, not be afraid. And so, no, I'm going to keep writing op-ed pieces, and I wrote one on, on uh, this past week. And we look forward to you coming back on and clarifying them if we get the chance. Bill Dudley, we appreciate your time. A privilege, a pleasure. The former New York Fed President, Bill Dudley, joining Tom Keene and myself in a special edition of Bloomberg Surveillance.